Morning. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we love your word. And we desire that your word would, by your spirit's power, come to shape our lives into the very likeness of your son. And so as we come to your word right now, we hold it in reverence, we honor your word, and we ask that you would help us to understand and then to apply your word in our lives that you may receive the glory from lives yielded to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever heard someone say to you, the church is full of hypocrites? Had that charge leveled against you or against your church at one time or another? I think we've probably all heard that. What do you say when somebody says that? It's difficult to deny that there's a gap between where we are and where we want to be right? Uh, We want to be more like Jesus. We recognize we're not there yet. And so there's an inconsistency about us in terms of trying to live a life that honors him. But does that make us hypocrites? It makes us people in process, doesn't it? It makes us people who recognize we're not there yet. And I think that only if we try to deny that we are people in process do we become hypocrites in all of that. We want to admit our fallenness and not pretend to be something we are not. We're saved by grace, not by our own efforts. And so we can admit that we are fallen people. We're all in process of becoming more like Jesus but we recognize we've got a long way to go. And the fact that the church is a mixed bag of people in process is actually an important part of our ministry. I think you've said it well in one of your core values. Core value number six says, we believe that coming to faith in Christ and growing in faith is a process. Therefore, our church will be a place where people are warmly accepted and helped, no matter where they are at in the process. Fact is, we're here for fallen people. We could close the doors and just work on our own stuff, I suppose, we could do that. I don't know how much progress we'd really make. But if we did that, we'd be cutting ourselves off from the very people that God has commissioned us to reach. The church is and always will be a mixed bag until we get to glory. Jesus said it himself in the parable that was read earlier from Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In the parable, an enemy sows weeds among the wheat. And the wheat and the weeds grow up together until harvest time. And we need to recognize that the church that Jesus describes there will never be 100% pure until harvest time, until he comes again. And when he returns, he will separate the wheat from the weeds. But until then, they grow together. That's just the nature of things. 
But beyond that realization of this mixed bag called the church, we recognize that reaching fallen people is a huge part of our mission. River Hills is not an attractional based church. It's, it's not that sort of ministry. We don't say we have attractive programming that your unchurched friends will enjoy, so bring them here for a great time and somewhere along the way they'll hear the gospel. They will hear the gospel here, but it won't be in the context of programs designed to attract them. We're not designed to attract the unchurched. But even if 100% of our evangelism took place outside the walls of the church, salvation, when, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, they're not instantly transformed into Christ-like people. It's just not the way things operate. Salvation itself has at least three parts that we talk about. The first part is justification. It's where God declares us righteous on the basis of his son's sacrifice on our behalf. So based on the righteousness of Christ applied to us, we are declared righteous. We move in that moment from zero righteousness to 100% righteousness in an instant. That's justification. And in our justification, we are immediately set free from the penalty of sin. Zero percent righteousness to 100 percent righteousness, set free instantly from the penalty of sin. And it's that that allows the apostle Paul to say, I, or we, have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We have been saved. That's a part of our salvation, justification. Second part of it is called sanctification. That's more of a process as the outside of us catches up with what God has done on the inside of us in justifying us. It's, uh, if you looked at a graph of it, it, instead of going from zero to 100%, it would look a little bit more like the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average you know, in the newspaper, you know, ups and downs. Uh, but wanting to see a general trend up and to the right, in the right direction as God's Holy Spirit works in us to sanctify us. We, through sanctification and the Spirit's power, are gradually set free from the power of sin in our lives. And it's that that allows the Apostle Paul to say we are being saved 1 Corinthians 1.18. Third part is glorification. That takes place when Jesus comes again for his own. We are glorified, finally set free from the presence of sin. That will be the day, won't it? I'm looking forward to it. And that allows the Apostle Paul to say in Romans 5.10, we will be saved so justification frees us instantaneously from the penalty of sin. Sanctification frees us gradually from the power of sin. And glorification frees us ultimately from the very presence of sin. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. That's this process of salvation. We right now, those of us who have put our trust in Christ, are being sanctified. We're not there yet. We're not Christ-like yet. We want to be, but we recognize we're in process. I'll tell you a little secret. 
I think that there may be more messed up people inside the church than outside the church. I'm not talking just about this church, I'm talking about the church. Think about it for a second. The self-made man, the successful person, the, the person that's got his act together, looks at this and says, I don't need that. I don't want that. I've got my life together. Who is it that comes to Christ? It's the person that says, I'm broken. I'm fallen. I'm failed. I've dug myself a hole I can't climb out of, and I need a savior. It's that kind of brokenness that brings a person to Christ and into the church. I think there's more broken and fallen and failed people here than the self-made people who are on the outside. That's what the church is full of. And so it's helpful to recognize the fact that when we are being effective in reaching people for Christ, the church will become more messy and not less messy. How about that? Ministry is messy. A favorite proverb of mine is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Living translation puts it this way, the New Living, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. If you want a clean stable, don't have any animals. If you want to have a good harvest, you're going to have to clean up some messes. Ministry is messy. And so together with that realization, we need to know what we can do about it. What do you do with this mixed bag called the church. What do you do with the messiness of ministry? I believe that this passage in 2 Timothy that we're looking at today tells us about that. First, we have in verses 20 and 21 a picture of the church. Verses 20 and 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. A picture of the church, a picture of this mixed bag called the church. The great house that Paul talks about here is God's great house. It's the church. Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where he speaks about the household of God. It's the house of God, the church. And the context here in 2 Timothy is Paul has just been talking about quite a mix of people. Some are into discussing and debating theological speculations and other people in the church are devastated by those discussions and debates. And it's this whole mixed bag going on that Paul is addressing. The church has people in it of all kinds, people at all levels of maturity, people at all stages of spiritual growth, people of all sorts of mixed motives. That's the idea of this great house that contains all kinds of vessels. I'm convinced that the church will always be full of people who represent a wide spectrum. People who um, may be 
um, not yet saved, all the way to people who are very spiritually mature. And that our job is to help people all along the way to take another step in a relationship with Christ. Picture, for instance, if, if you could imagine a, a continuum up here on this platform from way over on this side where we see people who are, are far from God. You probably know some people who are far from God. And, and uh, along the way, uh, there, there are some steps that those people can take that will bring them to a point of spiritual awareness and spiritual openness and readiness to act. And here about where the pulpit is, there's a large cross. And they come to the foot of the cross and recognize their need for a savior and put their trust in him. And I pray that that describes everyone here. If it doesn't, I wanna talk with you about how you can know that you've got a relationship with him that gives you eternal life. But once we've brought someone to that point, there is a whole lot of maturing to do. There is growth on this side of the cross as well. Uh, a growing believer to a, a serving believer, uh, a maturing believer. There, there is a point along the way toward maturity on this side of the cross that a lot of us get stuck in, though. And it's a place that I call a plateaued believer, someone who has become stagnant in their faith walk. And that can uh, describe us, and we can actually think that that's normal, that that's just kind of where you end up, sort of stagnated. But what we need is other believers in our lives at that point to challenge us to get moving again and to continue to take subsequent steps in a relationship with God in Christ. Far from God to spiritually mature. All of those are uh, able to come together here in the church as we help people take that next step. And so Paul describes this great house, which is the house of God. Uh, and then he says that this great house has vessels, and those vessels are us. Uh, dishware, silverware, those sorts of vessels. And we're a mixed bag with people of all kinds at all places along that continuum. And to charge that the church is full of, to the charge that the church is full of hypocrites, we say we are here to receive broken people, to receive fallen people, and to see them transformed into the very likeness of Christ. We're all in process. Some are honorable vessels, Paul says, those that are set apart as useful to the master, verse 21, those that are ready to be used of him. Uh, think about vessels that are, that are uh, honorable vessels. Think about like a china plate, okay? Uh, just uh, fit for the very best use in the house, honorable vessels. He also talks about dishonorable vessels, those that are not ready yet, not very useful yet. And so you may think about a dog dish, uh, not quite ready to be set out for guests in the house. And yet look at the astonishing thing that Paul says in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, there's the dog dish, 
He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Is that astonishing to you in verse 21? I mean, does that just kind of blow you away? It does me. These vessels have hope. People can change. We are not stuck where we presently are. Uh, the dog dish can become the china plate. Now take a look again at verse 21. Paul says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. Now notice, first of all, the word anyone. Do you know what the Greek word for anyone means? It means anyone. How about that? Anyone, you, you might want to underline it, anyone, anyone can change, anyone can recognize they've been going down the wrong road, anyone can say, I'm not as effective for the Lord as I want to be, anyone can say, I want to be set apart as holy, anyone can say, I want to be really useful to the master, anyone can say, I want to be ready for every good work, anyone. Does that desire describe you? Do you want to be more effective for the Lord? If so, these next verses will tell us how. Verse 21 tells us we can. Verses 22 and 23 tell us how we can. Take a look at them. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Paul tells us in verse 21 that we can be cleaned from our former use. Run that dog dish through the dishwasher and something miraculous happens. It becomes a china plate. That's just astonishing. You think about Paul's own story in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. Formerly, that's who I used to be. That's not who I am now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he describes a number of people in verses 9 through 11, in, in 9 and 10, he gives a, a whole list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says something astonishing in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. That's who you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The dog dish has become the china plate. And we recognize that the former descriptions no longer have any hold on us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's who you now are in Christ. Don't let the former descriptions define you. You're not who you used to be. Notice also in verse 21, not only does it say anyone, it says something else that, that struck me as odd when I read it. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, 
from what is dishonorable. It's, it's active, it's not passive. It, it doesn't say if anyone gets cleansed, it says if anyone cleanses himself. That was surprising. There's action required on our part. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul says, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Do your best. NIV says, make every effort. This is not an effortless process on our part. We are involved in some choices that we can make. He says here, if you cleanse yourself, it's not passive. Now, Philippians chapter 2, I think maybe goes into a little bit more detail on this in verses 12 and 13, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there is this action on our part as we work out the implications of our salvation, but there's an underlying tone there that tells us that God is the one that's doing it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We strive, we make every effort, we work, we cleanse ourselves, using Paul's words, knowing that it's God who's at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We notice also that it says cleanse yourself, not cleanse the guy next to you. We saw it last week as well. We get the log out of our own eye first. And Paul goes on to tell us how to cleanse ourselves, starting at verse 22, where he begins with the word so. You see it there? So, in other words, based on what I said in verse 21, so, I'm going to tell you how to do it now. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul's going to tell us here what to run from and what to run toward. And then he's going to tell us in verse 23 what to stay away from. Three simple subpoints here. First, flee or run from youthful passions. Run from those things. Put them behind you. Uh, when you think of youthful passions, what do you think of? Probably think of sexual temptation, that sort of thing. That's not in the context here, though. And I think he's speaking about a broader spectrum of immature decision-making. Youthful passions. You don't have to be young to have youthful passions. You just need to be thinking immaturely to have youthful passions. But you took, take a look at the rest of the passage, and I think what you see here is things that may not yet be under the control of the Holy Spirit not yet been brought under his control. Timothy, in his response to dishonorable vessels that's coming down in a couple of verses, needs to respond, Paul says, in a Christ-like way. So flee those things. Flee youthful passions and, and run toward or pursue a few things here in verse 22. Paul mentions four things in verse 22 that are worth pursuing. And if I got to the end of my life and someone spoke at my funeral and said that those four things characterized me, I'd consider my life a success, whether I accomplished anything else in it or not. Four things that are really worth 
pursuing. These are character qualities, evidences that God has done a transforming work from within. Take a look at them. First one is righteousness. Pursue righteousness, run toward righteousness, run away from youthful passions, run toward righteousness. What we're talking about here is an upright life, not self-righteousness, not a holier-than-thou attitude, but uprightness in our dealings with people that makes us the kind of person that someone will respect and admire and want to be with. It refers to a moral excellence that characterizes a person in his dealings. Righteousness, run after that. He also says, run after faith. Run after faith, that's learning to trust God and to do things his way. It's a daily undaunted trust in God, and it really shows up when the chips are down. When the chips are down, we really see what it is we're trusting. In a church that I once served, there was a man who had been an elder. He had been a a small group leader. He had been a Sunday school teacher. He always had a biblical answer to things. Uh, He was getting old. Uh, He was having a hard time getting around. His house had staircases that he had a hard time navigating. And then his house burned to the ground. He and his wife were spared, um, but they were devastated. And I I went over there the day after the fire, met with him, prayed with him, tried to help him see a bigger picture. And yet, week after week, seeing him, meeting with him, he was inconsolable over the loss of his house. Until the insurance company paid for the house to be rebuilt on one level. And then he was full of joy. He finally had the perspective I was trying to help him to have earlier on. But his faith was shattered. His trust in God was shattered. God couldn't be up to anything in in this. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And yet when the house was rebuilt in such a way that he didn't have to navigate those stairs anymore, he was full of joy. What's going on? He was walking by sight, not by faith. And we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. So pursue that, run after that. Run after righteousness, run after faith. Paul says then run after love. As well, and he uses the word agape that he uses so frequently when talking about love. And and agape love is desiring God's best for someone and then applying ourselves to help bring that about in their lives. Run after that. And then he says, run after peace, harmony, as opposed to the word fights that we looked at last week that were going on in the church at Ephesus. And, you know, in a church that is filled with strife like that church was, you had to know that that was going to make the list of things that Paul told them to run after. And he says, do that. Run after these four things in the company of people who are running after them along with you. Have you considered how important Christian fellowship is to your own faith walk? 
I look back over my life and I see the times that I struggled the most were the times that I was taken out of Christian fellowship. You know, the time when the army would send me on some temporary assignment and I was isolated. It's, it, it felt kind of like the, the coal taken out of the fire and set off by itself and you watch that ember begin to lose its fire. And he put it back in the context of Christian fellowship, and it, it glows once again. The fellowship of other believers is so important. And so we need to be regular in our worship attendance. We need to be involved in our discovery group or in another sort of small group. It'll keep you on the right track as you run after these four things in the company of others who are running after them as well. Run from, run toward. There's a third thing he says we can do, and that is stay away from controversies, verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. The word that's used for controversies implies expressing forceful differences of opinion without necessarily seeking a solution. So stay away from that. You know what it leads toward. It leads towards quarrels. And that word quarrels is most often used in a military context. It means battles. These controversies create battles between people, and that's not what we want to pursue. And Paul says in verse 24, that can't describe God's servant. And so if you find that describing you, what does that say you need to do? Let me ask you, if I could tell you for sure that an action of yours would lead you to harm, would you be smart or foolish to go ahead and do it anyway? Bible says you'd be foolish, right? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33 says, pressing milk produces curds. We know that here in Wisconsin, right? Pressing milk produces curds. Pressing or twisting the nose produces blood. And pressing anger produces strife. It's a simple cause and effect. You want peace? Stay away from controversies. Does that mean we don't confront sin? No, we do. We do. We just need to be careful how we confront sin. So run from, run toward, and stay away from. And you may say, well, that's great for those of us who are interested in changing. What about those who don't seem to be? Well, Paul tells us in verses 24 to 26 how to deal with dishonorable vessels. Take a look. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. How do you deal with dishonorable vessels? Help the dog dish become the china plate. My dad was a 30-year Army veteran, and he said some interesting things that I remember from growing up in his house. Some of those things don't really seem to fit an old soldier. He wasn't your typical old soldier. He, he didn't just sort of stand people at attention and yell at them. 
Uh, one of the things that he said was this. He said, you can attract more bees with a spoonful of honey than you can with a bucket full of spit. Pretty good for an old soldier, you know. You can attract more bees with a spoonful of honey than you can with a bucket full of spit. And I think Paul takes a, a similar tone here in verses 24 to 26 when he talks about how to deal with dishonorable vessels. And so I want to give you a few bees uh, that you can attract maybe or pursue. First, from verse 24, be kind to them. Be kind. It's the difference between coming alongside someone and coming at them. Which one is going to get the better response? Which one is going to get the response you want? To come at somebody or to come alongside them? Be kind to them. Second B is be teaching them. Paul says able to teach here. Same thing he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in terms of a qualification for an elder. Able to teach. Able to teach, not ready to condemn. Teachers don't get mad at their students when the students don't grasp a concept, right? They just come at it a different way and put it in terms that the student can grasp. They recognize it as a teaching opportunity. I heard John Piper at one of his conferences once respond in a Q&A session to a question that was really uh, pretty harsh. And in his response, he showed that he saw this as a teaching opportunity. And he transformed what was a tense situation when this questioner raised this in front of everybody into a, a good outcome because he recognized a teaching opportunity. This idea of able to teach has to do not only with competency but also with our willingness to see things as teaching opportunities. The third B, be patient or long-suffering with them. It's an interesting phrase, patiently enduring evil. That, that looks really strange, doesn't it? It doesn't mean we allow evil to triumph. It translates a single Greek word that has to do with enduring difficulties without becoming angry. Uh, NIV translates this as not resentful. That's good. When, when you're receiving something that you feel is, is directed toward you in a negative way, can you endure that in such a way that you're not becoming resentful? In other words, it has to do with enduring evil that's done to us, not done to somebody else. We need to take it ourselves. Be patient with them. And the fourth B is be training them with gentleness. ESV uses the word correcting. I think the word training is probably a little better translation. The word speaks of the kind of training a child receives from his or her parents. In other words, break something down to small steps that the person can appreciate and gain mastery over and then introduce another small step along the way that they can gain mastery over. You, you break it down into smaller steps. A friend of mine named Sam uh, likes to ride trail, and he's got a few horses that he likes to ride trail on, but Sam always wanted a mule. 
And so he started an internet search for a mule, and he wanted a mule that was untrained, unbroken. He didn't want a mule that was trained by anybody else. He wanted to train this mule himself. He found a one-and-a-half-year-old untrained mule in Canada and drove his trailer up to pick him up. Now, what do you name uh, an untrained year-and-a-half-old mule who comes from Canada? He named him Dudley. Now, for, for some of us my age, you, you understand the reference, right? Remember Dudley Do-Right of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? So Sam and Dudley were a pair. And I met with Sam every week for Bible study, and Sam would come in with a story about what Dudley had done that week. The first thing Dudley did when he brought him home was he kicked down the barn that he had him in. I mean, <laughs> Dudley was really something. And so um, uh, Sam would, would break tasks down to the smallest possible increment you could imagine. I mean, if you're thinking about, about trying to impart something to somebody and you break it down to a smaller step, divide that small step into 10. And that's what Sam did with Dudley. And he would tell each week about something that Dudley had mastered. It was like it was his, his kid. He was so proud of him, you know. And uh, Dudley became a pretty good trail riding mule. All because Sam broke things down as he trained him with gentleness. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and then, at the end of it, he says, you got to recognize as you're doing these things, as you're, you're, you're doing these B's, these four B's, that God is the one who grants repentance. God is the one who brings about lasting change. Verses 25 and 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. God can do this. We can't. We can't change hearts. Only God can. And we can apply these bees to people. Be gentle, be kind, be patient, be teaching, be training but we can't change their hearts. And so we bring them to the Lord in prayer and ask him to do what we can't do, and that is to change hearts. The church is filled with people at all stages of spiritual maturity. Some are vessels of gold and silver, honorable vessels, set apart as holy, useful to the master, ready for every good work. Others are vessels of wood and clay, Pretty limited in what they can be used for. Paul calls them dishonorable vessels. And the good news is we're not stuck where we are. By God's grace, we can move from dishonorable to honorable. We can move from the dog dish to the china plate. We can become more useful vessels for the master. Now think back to that continuum that went from this side of the platform to this other side of the platform. Where would you put yourself on that continuum? Basic question, which side of the cross are you on? Have you put your trust in Christ at this point in your life? And, and maybe, uh, maybe you were 
uh, you've been resistant, maybe you've been far from God, maybe you haven't been interested, and you need just to take a step of faith toward the cross and, and become more spiritually aware, become spiritually open, get to the point where you are ready to act, ready to put your trust in the one who died on that cross to save you. Maybe you're on this side of the cross and uh, you are, are growing as a believer. You're excited in your faith. You're, you're learning your spiritual gift and finding a place to serve. But maybe you've come to that place of stagnation and you need to be prompted to take another step of faith and get back on a learning curve and a growing curve in your walk with God. Wherever you are on that continuum, in this mixed bag we call the church, there's another step of faith for you to take. And I would love to be a part of helping you take it. I'll be up here after the service is over. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be working here in the building during the week, and I'd love to talk with you. Feel free to call or to come by, and I'd love to help you figure out and take that next step. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, thank you for putting us together in the combination that you have. We know you are purposeful in that. We know that through this combination of people called the church, you have purposes to achieve in us, even though sometimes it's uncomfortable. And I pray, Father, that the desire of our hearts would be to be useful vessels, honorable vessels for you, and I pray, Father, that you would take what is dishonorable in us and would you remove it? Help us to cooperate with you in this cleansing process as you are at work in us, both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And so, Father, we yield ourselves to you and ask you to have full sway in us. Let us be responsive to your spirit for the sake of your kingdom and your reputation. In Jesus' name, amen.